Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With inflation rocketing and public services coming under intense pressure, Labour has been accused of being asleep at the wheel during a summer of discontent. He has broken his silence after days of criticism for uh, going AWOL, going missing, missing in action. Uh, it seems that uh, Sir Keir rather has missed an opportunity to attack uh, the uh, government on the cost of living. But as Labour gathers in Liverpool for the party conference, just days after the government unveiled its controversial new budget, many will be looking to Sakir Starmer to see how he compares to the new Prime Minister. There's nothing new about a Tory Prime Minister who, when asked who pays, says it's you, the working people of Britain. Well, there's nothing new about a Labour leader who is calling for more tax rises. When Sakir Starmer makes his big speech tomorrow, can he convince his critics that he's the right person to turn around Labour's election fortunes? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, what is Keir Starmer's big plan? Gosh, a year is a long time, as they say. But yes, I remember sitting in the conference hall uh, in Brighton, waiting uh, for Keir Starmer to begin his speech. Delegates, could we please ask you to take your seats? Thank you. In that packed hall, this time last year, Sakir Starmer was about to make his keynote speech at the Labour Party conference. Sunday Times political editor Caroline Wheeler, who's speaking to me from her office just below Big Ben, was in the audience. It was quite a big moment because... Sakir Starmer had been elected as the Labour leader during the pandemic, which meant that most of his speeches up until that moment had been delivered pretty much in his living room or in his office, in his home. It was the first time that he'd really been given an opportunity to address the party in person. Thank you so much, conference. I've waited, I've waited 17 months 25 days and two hours to appear in front of you in this hall as leader of our great party. 
And I remember it was quite nerve-wracking at the time because I was sat in the auditorium and there were people sitting either side of me that were clearly there to make trouble. They all had red cards, which they were preparing to hold up during his speech as a kind of admonishment for what he had been perceived to have done to the left of the party since he'd taken over. And they were sort of debating amongst themselves how they were going to heckle him and take him to task during this speech. And I remember being quite nervous and and texting the leader's office and saying, I hope you're prepared for a bumpy ride here. It's clear there's going to be uh, trouble ahead. And they were were quite calm about it. They'd anticipated that Sakir Starmer was likely to face some disruption during his conference speech. And indeed he did. Almost throughout the entirety of his speech, he was heckled. To those who reluctantly chose the Tories because they didn't believe that our promises were credible. To the voters, to the voters. But he dealt with it quite well. This, this is a... At this time on a Wednesday, it's normally the Tories that are heckling me. Doesn't bother me then. (laughs) Won't bother me now. And actually, although it was disruptive, I think they were largely happy that he came through it uh, quite well and he managed to deal with the crowd and he did it with great humour. And I think they eventually chalked that up to a bit of a victory, whereas (laughs) some of the political speeches we've seen where there has been repeated interruptions and I reference Theresa May's speech, if you remember, where she was handed a P45 and indeed part of the set fell down. The response was rather different and people thought it was more of a failure, but for... Sakir Starmer, though it was clear and sort of symbolic of the tension still bubbling under the surface of the party, it actually went quite well. So do you think he'll get a warmer reception this time round? I think a lot's been achieved over the past 12 months. I think those rule changes that were consolidated at the last Labour conference, and that was making sure that the way in which the leader was elected made it more difficult for the left of the party to get onto the ballot paper, as had happened with his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. I think that was seen as a big change in the party. And it was was a moment of what was described to me by a very senior Labour figure as as real bloodletting within the party. I think they're anticipating that there will be flashpoints at this conference. And let's not forget that it comes amid a backdrop of Lots of industrial action going on, both within the transport unions, but also other unions that are fighting for inflation, busting pay rises. I think they're anticipating that that uh, will create some tension within the party, but I don't think they're expecting it to be on the same scale that we saw before, which was really a party that was fighting amongst itself. I think there is more of a sense now that the party is trying to establish itself as a government in waiting. And actually, there is a necessity now that if they want to see the end of a Tory government, the party now needs to pull together in order to make that happen. And just remind us of of the journey that, that Keir Starmer has been on. I mean, when he became leader, what were sort of the biggest challenges that he inherited? Well, just taking over the party itself was a huge challenge. In fact, it was really at a time of existential crisis for the party. The party was bitterly divided between insurgent left 
that had sort of taken control of the Labour Party under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn and a party that had lost several general elections, indeed the last general election, uh, some of the worst electoral results in history for that party. It's the worst night for the Labour Party since 1935. And I, I, to be honest, I I want to apologise to all those people because we, the Labour Party, have failed to deliver the Labour government um, that I think that so many people were hoping and praying for. It was absolutely cataclysmic. There had been a leadership contest where the left and indeed the moderate wing of the party had kind of battled it out in the guise of Sakir Starmer and his rivals for that crown. But the party had been left in a real state. The party was really struggling financially, was facing numerous court battles, largely to do with some of those anti-Semitism battles that had waged within the party. The party apologised unreservedly for any harm that was caused during that period and they say that they've agreed a settlement with former employees that Channel 4 News understands will be worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. So it was really facing a battle for survival on that front and also a, a membership that was bitterly divided, people that were still loyal to the Corbyn agenda that were butting up against the moderate wing of the party that were still trying to take charge of the party. And I think that lots of people kind of underestimate the real uphill battle that Sakir Starmer and the leadership team have had to wage to transform the fortunes of the party, to make it a sort of viable, ongoing concern. And there's certainly a feeling now that they are getting the party back to where it needs to be. And indeed, for a long time, even while Sakir Starmer took over, was very much on the back foot, often trailing substantially the Conservative Party in the poll. And Caroline, you've highlighted, in a way, some of Keir Starmer's triumphs there. He inherited a party in disarray and he's had quite a task in trying to turn it around. On the other hand, people have criticised him for being you know, leader of the opposition for two years now and no one really understands what he stands for. What does it say? What does it, what does it say about him? But no one can name a single policy of the late after three years of the Labour opposition apart from putting up taxes. He's one of those pointless plastic bollards you find uh, around a around a deserted roadworks on a motorway, Mr. Speaker. Do you think that's fair? I think it's very difficult for the leader of an opposition party to ever really establish what they stand for until we get to those kind of electoral events. Uh, It's certainly a criticism that was weighed against David Cameron when he was leader of the Conservative Party in opposition. Lots of people were very critical that even two years into his tenure, very little had been delivered by way of policy. So I don't think it's something that this particular Labour leader is particularly prone to, aside from other leaders of other parties. But I think that at this moment, I think, you know, many believe we're about 18 months out from a general election. I think largely we are suspecting that there'll be a general election in May 2024. I think this is the moment where, particularly now that Liz Truss is Prime Minister, we're going to start to see some of those dividing lines between the two leading parties become more clear. And Labour conference started on Sunday. Do we have a vision yet of, of what is Keir Starmer's big plan? He wants to set out 
a real kind of sense of where his party's going now. They've had several conferences since he took over. The first one was about really showing that the party was going to change, that they accepted that they had been defeated and that they weren't going to blame the electorate for that. Let's be brutally honest with ourselves. When you lose an election in a democracy, you deserve to. You don't look at the electorate and ask them, what were you thinking? You look at yourself and ask, what were we doing? They were going to take that on board and start making the changes that were necessary. The second conference was much more about Sir Keir Starmer himself, who he was and what his values are. My dad was a toolmaker in a factory and worked on the shop floor all his life. My mum worked incredibly hard too. She was a nurse in the NHS and a very proud nurse too. I was never one of those people reared for politics. I became the first person in my family to go to university. And I think this conference is very much setting out his vision for the nation and really setting out those dividing lines, which, broadly speaking, are all going to be based on economic policy. And I think we'll hear a lot about his agenda for growth and, in particular, making sure that that growth works for everybody and isn't just a product of that trickle-down economics that this trust is talking about, where basically the, the, the kind of benefits start from the wealthy and trickle down to the, to the lower classes. And I think mm. that will be one of the dividing lines that he sets out. He'll also be talking, I think, about how the green agenda is going to be integral to his sense of where he takes the country in terms of green jobs and green growth. And thirdly, I think... He's going to talk about how he's going to pay for some of the promises that he's made, which, again, is going to stand in stark contrast, I believe, to what Liz Truss's party will be able to do, given that we're still not going to know the extent of borrowing that's going to be required for, for example, the energy price freeze. Whereas Sir Keir Starmer's very clear that they would fund that through a windfall tax rather than relying on borrowing and general taxation. Hmm. And so he's going to try... I think, to make out that Labour is now the fiscally responsible party. That's something that was very much the kind of clothes of the Conservative administration ordinarily. But I think there is now an appreciation that it is the economy stupid, that elections are going to be won and lost based on economic promises and economic prosperity. And in appealing to, you know, not just the party, but beyond it, is there a sense that... Is Keir Starmer the man who will win back the Red Wall? Does he have that kind of populist persona? Or is he sort of refocusing, you know, concentrate on, on the urban areas where they're doing quite well at the moment? How does that work out in, in electoral terms? When there was the local elections, those local elections gave them a huge amount of data about the types of people that were going to vote for them, who had voted for them before, who was coming back to them, the target seats that they need to win. And I think what that taught them was that it's not just the red wall that they need to win. They need to be winning all over England, and in particular in Scotland too, if they're going to be able to transform their electoral fortunes. So they're also talking about what's become known as the seawall, which are those southern seats Tell us a bit about those southern seats and what would appeal to them. 
Well, these are the kind of seats like, for example, Worthing, which we saw in the local elections go to become a, a, a Labour council. Hmm. I mean, they're the kinds of seats where you're going to see kind of young professionals that maybe can't afford to live in London being displaced. But they are also the very different kind of people doing very different kind of jobs to those people that live in those red wall seats. And so the one thing that they think is going to motivate people is that that kind of levelling up agenda that, that Boris Johnson was talking about, really making sure that it's not just London and the South East, but those areas, A, further south and B, further north, that they can really deliver kind of economic prosperity to them, but not just in a way that feels like it's paying lip service. I mean, I think that's where we're going to see quite a sort of micro-local agenda developing, where even the Labour leader himself is going to talk about the kinds of jobs that he might want to bring to those areas so that they can show that life is going to be different. In addition to sort of, you know, policies and the changes that they can promise to people's lifestyles at the next election, a lot of people are going to be looking at Keir Starmer's image, you know, his personality. This is a criticism that's been levelled at you uh, from voters, but also members of your shadow cabinet. Are you too boring to be the next prime minister? <laughs> well, let me take that one. Uh, the only thing that's boring is opposition. That's what's boring. He does get a lot of criticism for being boring. Do you think that'll affect his electoral chances? I mean, many people think he is boring. I've known both senior Labour figures in, in Westminster describe him as a wooden plank, you know, saying that... <laughs> and he, that's Labour. And that's Labour. <laughs> that's not even coming from the opposition. Some people may see that as being a negative, but actually lots of people don't necessarily see kind of serious, stable, all of those things as being a negative, particularly after what we've just experienced with a government that has been plagued with scandal. And actually, Sakir Starmer could be seen as a positive antidote to that kind of behaviour. Now, how that will translate in an electoral campaign, it's really hard to know. Coming up, could Labour win the next election? That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Henry Zeffman, Associate Political Editor at The Times. It's my job to take you to the heart of Westminster, working out what's really going on in the corridors of power. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last Friday, as the Chancellor unveiled his fiscal plans, the distance between Labour and the Conservatives seemed to grow wider. Can I thank the Chancellor on his comprehensive demolition of the record of the last 12 years? Their record, their failure. The Prime Minister and Chancellor are like two desperate gamblers in a casino, chasing a losing run. With the next general election due to be held no later than January 2025, the opposition should now be gearing up for the campaign. At this point in the election cycle, before Tony Blair achieved his landslide win in 1997, cracks had begun to show in John Major's government. There is really a kind of 92 government. This is the major government that was beset with problems. Major was having a terrible time with his cabinet. Good evening. John Major has resigned as leader of the Conservative Party to force a leadership election. He remains as Prime Minister. He told his rivals in the party it was time to put up or shut up. It felt very much like end of days for the Conservative Party at that time. And there were people even within his own party that genuinely believed that the party needed a period in opposition. Indeed, there was an interview that I did with West Streeting in the magazine in the Sunday Times yesterday. West Streeting said to me that that was something he was picking up on, that there were real echoes of that kind of major administration in freefall. In terms of Tony Blair, I mean, what I find absolutely fascinating about this Labour administration is it is really bringing the team back together again. You know, Tony Blair is involved, Gordon Brown is involved, many members of that administration are now serving in key positions. Gordon Brown has been stealing the headlines and leading the charge against the government on the cost of living crisis. And so there are real echoes of the past uh, leading up to that sort of historic 97 victory for Tony Blair. And just comparing it to that moment, I mean... How is Keir Starmer doing in the polls compared to where Tony Blair was at the same sort of point in the cycle? Well, Sir Keir Starmer has enjoyed a poll lead for some months now, extending as far as about 14 percentage points ahead. I believe that's come down after Liz Truss took over as Prime Minister, which is not to be unexpected to get a kind of new bounce for any incoming Prime Minister. But Tony Blair was further ahead in the polls at a similar kind of time prior to the general election. Sort of two years out, he was sort of 20 to 30% ahead. But of course, 
we are only just seeing the beginning of the economic crisis that many believe we'll face. Whereas at a similar point in time for the administration that Tony Blair was about to inherit, there had been problems for a lot longer. So it's difficult to know where we'll end up at a, a general election. But certainly at the moment, it's not a convincing a lead as Tony Blair had at a similar point. And I suppose the difficulty for Keir Starmer is that he's now up against a new leader, you know, who doesn't have the same toxic past, you know, Boris Johnson by the end with Partygate and everything else. There was a clear poll lead for Keir Starmer. Now he's up against somebody new and there will be a honeymoon period for Liz Truss. How does he begin to fight somebody who won't have been in power for that long? I think they actually relish the fact that they've now got an opponent where there are very clear, different dividing lines. With Boris Johnson, he was a bit of a chameleon. He would often kind of bend to the wind. One senior Labour figure described him as a bit of blancmange. I think it helps them to have an opponent where there are very clear differences in policy. And I think Liz Truss is quite emphatic about what she is. She's a low-tax Tory. She believes in trickle-down economics. She's very clear that she thinks that growth comes from that kind of policy. And Sakir Starmer completely disagrees with that. He doesn't think that that's going to solve the nation's problems, which means that they can really have a debate on policy. Whereas what was happening more and more uh, when he faced Boris Johnson at the dispatch box was it was really a clash of personalities that we were seeing quite often. That's how he operates, a merely-mouthed apology when the cameras roll, a vicious attack on those who tell the truth as soon as the cameras are off. Slander decent people in a private room, let the slander spread without the backbone to repeat it in public. Mr Speaker, it is an indication of the depths to which he's willing to see, that he accuses me... What he says, what he says is completely without any foundation, whatever. He must be out of his tiny mind, Mr Speaker. He must be out of his tiny mind. There was obviously very visceral dislike between the two of them, whereas from what I understand, uh, Sakir Starmer doesn't have such a negative relationship with Liz Truss. I think the two of them uh, have a fairly cordial relationship. So I think we're going to see a very different style of debate going on in the House of Commons, particularly when we have those set pieces like PMQs, for example. And Caroline, just looking at the, the polling over the last year or two, is there a natural generational shift happening in the electorate which seems like it will work in Labour's favour? Well, I think you could look at it two ways. There are always things that go in one party's favour, whether it's that, you know, younger voters generally are more attracted to the Labour Party than the Conservative Party. So it depends on the number of people, the the, the kind of demographics. But we do also have an older population as well to contend with. So the two things sort of balance each other out. But at the same time, you know, one of the other factors we've perhaps not considered is that there's often a kind of natural pendulum. It tends to be the case that when a party has been in power for a long period of time, there's a kind of natural sense within the electorate that they want change. So I think there's lots of things that can be seen as a positive factor for Labour. But equally, you know, there will be things that are not in its favour. 
And one of the things that isn't going to be in its favour is that it can't determine when a general election is called. That will be down to Liz Trust. And of course, that is a very good thing for governments to have that power because it means that they kind of pull the trigger at the most optimum period for them. Now, again, that could also be problematic for them if, for example, we don't see any uplift in the economy, then they become a kind of hostage to fortune. So as I say, all of these things can be a positive, but all of them can also be a negative. Lots of sophologists who look at the electoral arithmetics of the next election sort of think that if Labour do win, chances are they'll be in a coalition with the Lib Dems, possibly with the SNP. Will he have to amend his policies again in order to be able to work alongside other parties? Nobody knows what's going to happen if there is a power-sharing arrangement. We saw under David Cameron that, yes, policies did have to change in order to accommodate those partners in government. And so, of course, if it were a situation where the Labour Party was the biggest party but with no outright majority, of course there would have to be negotiation around policies. But I think that they'll do absolutely everything in their power to avoid that from happening and certainly to try and stop it becoming a kind of electoral issue for them because we know that that's played out badly for them in the past. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, political editor for The Sunday Times, Caroline Wheeler. You can find more coverage of the Labour Party conference, including all of Caroline's work, at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producers today were Sam Chantarasak, Edward Drummond and Constance Kampfner. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>